What if it rained food? What if Earth was a cube? What if we had nine lives? What if bits could fly? It's absurd. If money grew on trees, if we didn't have knees, if we walked through life slightly magnetical, it's absurd. Absurd hypotheticals. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Absurd Hypotheticals, the show we overthink dumb questions so you don't have to. I'm your host, Marcus Lehner, and I'm joined here today by Chris Yee and Ben Storms. Say hi, guys. Hey, I'm Chris. Hey, I'm Ben. I'm kind of surprised we haven't done something like this before, because it seems like a pretty low-hanging fruit for us in our podcast. Um, but we're, do- we're doing today is a science fair grab bag, where we all took one of the stereotypical science fair projects that you, you know, would expect a high schooler to do, and turned them into... Well, absurd hypotheticals. That's what we do. I mean, the reason we didn't do it before is because we didn't do grab bags before. Still, you would have thought we would have found some way to, to you know, get to one of these science fairy questions at some point. It's more like how did none of these ever end up on our brainstorm lists? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, your, Marcus, yours might have. I don't remember. Actually, it might have. Yeah. <laughs> well, then why don't I start? Because obviously mine's the most obvious one. And of course... The epitome of science fair projects. The number one best science fair project in the world. Vinegar and baking soda volcanoes. So, the question I did is, what if you had a full-sized vinegar and baking soda volcano? So, first off, how do vinegar and baking soda volcanoes work? So, you have baking soda, sodium bicarbonate, vinegar, which is dilute acetic acid, and when you combine them, um, it converts into water, sodium ions, acetate ions, and carbon dioxide. And so basically, once it all goes into a, you know, in solution together, and the sodium bicarbonate dissolves, the acetic acid and the basic, and the you know, is acidic, and the baking soda is basic, and the reaction of them canceling each other's out produces carbon dioxide, which is what causes the whole thing to bubble up. So all that trapped carbon dioxide is actually what causes the bubbling so effectively just a it's all carbon dioxide gas so i kind of looking at would this i start off would this be dangerous compared to a you know the stuff that's in regular volcanic gas <laughs> assume because i know from past experience lots of carbon dioxide is not very good in fact in in uh not super high doses carbon dioxide is poisonous and um, will easily poison and suffocate you. So, for a volcano, basically 60% or more um, is... <laughs> you can save 60% more in car insurance, but no, it's 60% plus <laughs> of the emissions are water vapor. So most of what comes out of a volcano is water. About 10, between 10 and 40%, which is basically the rest of it, is actually CO2. The other bits in it that are mixed in are a bit are the nastier stuff like sulfur methane carbon mono- carbon monoxide um, but those are all in pretty small concentrations so the gases our reaction produces are about the same as that we probably have on average a higher concentration of co2 but that can actually still be dangerous the kind of what makes co2 dangerous and this happens with real volcanoes already is if you have a pretty not windy day um, so the air doesn't move around too much. CO2 is heavier than air. So all that CO2 gas can actually pool in a valley. You know, if you if you have a town at the base of the mountain and it has like, you know, 
some slopes and it's like, you know, makes a bowl, the CO2 gas can actually fill up and displace all the good oxygen-rich breathing air, and actually people can suffocate just at ground level due to CO2 gases from the volcano, never mind getting killed in all the cool ways like lava and heat and, you know, actual poisons. You can just die from the the You already learned about that a few episodes ago. Yeah, we, yeah we, we've, like I said, we've covered CO2 poisoning a few times, because lots of things make CO2, very common gas. So that's kind of the base, that's kind of the base thing, you know, if you have, the only dangerous thing really happening out of the volcano is, is the CO2 gas, and there are a couple other things that I need to consider, because, do you guys know why lava is hot? Uh, pressure? Yeah, so basically, lava, of course, is just melted rocks for the most part. Uh, and they don't get hot on their own. So basically, in the Earth's mantle, you have the the high pressure and radioactive decay. They call it radiogenic heating. So the decay of uranium and thorium and potassium-40, apparently, are what are driving, you know, are actually melting all the rocks in the mantle to form a volcano, which kind of hits a couple problems. So the first problem is, does our science fair reaction actually work when the materials are very hot? Like, does this reaction actually occur, or would something else happen? So in your situation, you're saying that where the molten stuff would normally be is vinegar and baking soda. Yeah, exactly. So okay. basically what a volcano is, is a hole down to the mantle. So if you have a baking soda vinegar actual volcano, you just gotta replace all that molten rock with, you know, vinegar and baking soda. So basically I'm, I'm having it, it, it's sourced It's sourced from the mantle that is, I guess, filled entirely with, with uh, baking soda and vinegar now. Um, that would cause other problems. The whole mantle is that, but I'm kind of just counting it that it would still be hot because the things that heat that make lava hot is not anything to do with what the lava is made out of. So I was trying to figure out if this reaction would work when it's hot, and I actually found a uh, a YouTube video, thanks to the folks at the YouTube channel What We Made, where they took quote unquote molten baking soda. You ever see those videos where like they they heat up materials and like uh, you know with whatever torches and things to bring it up to whatever thousand degrees so they did that so they took baking soda heated it up to you know until it was glowing red it's like those knife videos yeah like right. the hot knife through bread and you know, when it, everything's just like a thousand degree knife versus water bottle or whatever those videos are they're always disappointing those videos <laughs> so this yeah this one was actually well it was both disappointing and relieving for my answer because when they poured the molten baking soda into the vinegar it literally just did the normal thing. <laughs> there was no, it was not extra big. It was not extra like it was. It was more more than likely faster based on the chemistry that I learned while looking at this. But it just worked pretty normal. Like, awesome! I don't have to worry about things getting super complicated. Yeah, exactly. You you do have to worry about impurities because they then followed up by putting um, molten salt and dropping it into that vinegar pool, and that exploded a lot. But the baking soda was just fine. And that kind of was my next, that was kind of my next thing was the reaction happens at those temperatures, but would you have a typical like magma pool? Because what, what do vinegar and baking soda look like at those high temperatures? So the inside of a volcano ranges from 700 to 1200 degrees Celsius. Baking soda has a melting point of 50 degrees Celsius. Um, And interestingly, when baking soda quote unquote melts, it actually is what it's doing is it's melting but it's also dissociating so baking soda is sodium bicarbonate and it dissociates into just sodium 
carbonate. So it, loses, it, it becomes a slightly different material, like a different compound. But luckily, when you actually get to the vinegar reaction, the vinegar basically puts it back into bicarbonate and then does the normal reaction. So it actually just slows it down slightly. It has an extra step, but it still works. It is a little tricky because baking soda actually boils at 851 degrees Celsius. So it's in the range. So if you have a slightly cooler volcano um, in the, you know, in the 700 to 850 range, you would have a respectable pool of bubbling baking soda at the bottom. Vinegar though is kind of more the problem because vinegar boils at just a little bit more than water at 118 degrees Celsius. So all your vinegar will not be in liquid form at those temperatures. And this complicates things because the vinegar won't be liquid in it. And when it's not a liquid, it can't form, it, it doesn't go into solution and doesn't start the reaction that we want. So I was like, ah, oh, crap. So now this whole thing doesn't work. But we haven't quite painted the whole picture yet because, yeah, at the base of this volcano, it is this hot. It is 700, it is, you know, 800 degrees Celsius, and it's all vinegar vapor and baking soda uh, that aren't really reacting much. But as you go higher in the volcano, you know, mouth, it's going to get cooler and cooler and cooler. And at a certain height, you're going to hit the point where the vinegar turns back into a liquid. And once you have that, now the liquid, now that vinegar, whether this is in the volcano, like high up in the volcano, or maybe even, you know, in the area right above it, once it turns, you're just going to have clouds that are going to actually just go ahead and rain back into the belly of the volcano. And so what what rains, what falls down really ha shouldn't have enough time to completely vaporize before it hits the, uh, before it hits the lava. So you will have some amount of reaction going. And I think what's cool is that if you have conditions that like more quickly cool the, the vinegar up top, like say you have a, you know, a particularly cold air that is pushing downwards into the volcano or you have like probably a rainy day you'll end up causing more of that vapor to more of that vinegar vapor to turn back into a liquid and you'll actually have periodic eruptions where there's more um activity so i think our volcano would actually not only just work but also work like on sustainably <laughs> yeah like in a, like a, an actual like periodic volcano way maybe like based on the weather yeah, it would be based on it would be yeah, it would be more predictable, <laughs> which is good, I guess, for volcanoes. So that that's kind of like the volcano. The volcano works. Um, there's gonna be although there's gonna be a couple other problems that go along with um, with the vinegar vapor. So I don't know if you guys, well, Ben, I'm sure you know, and Chris, you probably don't know. Uh, but when you're cooking and you and you know you're making like a like a pan sauce or something, you throw a vinegar into a hot pan and it, you know it vaporizes. And you breathe that in, that sucks. That's not comfortable. Not great. So basically what vinegar is made out of, I mentioned before, is that it's basically dilute acetic acid. So vinegar is between, like, I think it's 5 and 8% acetic acid. So an 8% will be a strong vinegar and 5% will be a more mellow one. But of course, we're going to have a lot of this. And because the temperature at which water boils is lower than the one where the acetic acid boils, the acetic acid is going to separate from the water and you're going to have higher acetic you're going to have acetic acid rain on the volcano separate from the water it's going to be more concentrated than it would be like in your kitchen and so a couple bad things one if it just is 
vapor, it is not fun to breathe. Um, it is not good for you. Uh, anything above like 10% was noted as intolerable to the average person, which didn't give quite a specific definition of what that would do. You know, they mentioned, you know, lung damage, eye irritation, etc., etc. But I think there's going to be basically a toxic cloud around this volcano that's going to make it not good for like, if you want to visit the mouth of the volcano, I don't think you can do that anymore. Uh, and the other problem is, is that acetic acid actually is quite corrosive and can corrode rocks and metals. So assuming your volcano is made out of, you know, rocks, or I guess you could theoretically imagine it's made out of paper mache, which would be um, (laughs) worse. But even if it's made out of rock, it probably would wear down fairly quickly, thanks to the acetic acid. And then you kind of have the problem where you have a... uh, an eroding, probably leaky volcano <laughs> where this, where the acid is carving out grooves and things for, you know, the baking soda to escape to the outside of the volcano, in which case you're now just, you know, making things uh, bad for everybody. This sounds worse than a normal volcano. Yeah, I think it's, I think the eruption itself is going to be less catastrophic um, because really just the CO2, that's a problem. Um, the problem is going to be that it's now just full of acid as opposed to you know, not acid (laughs) (laughs) and all the, all the stuff that would be, you know, countering the acidity is the baking soda, which is the thing that's just stuck in the middle. So it's just lots of vinegar is the real killer here, I guess is the point. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that is what happens if you have a full scale vinegar and baking soda volcano. So you go nowhere close to them, probably. Yeah, you can't, you can't go close to them and you have to worry about them just dissolving away and, and leaking into your village. Which should not be in a bowl that can get filled with CO2. That's also a problem. Don't live in a bowl next to a volcano. Got it. I mean, don't live next to a volcano is pretty good advice (laughs) in just like normal, non-vinegar-based life anyway. So, Eh, what's the worst that can happen? Vinegar-based life. (laughs) (laughs) Live that hashtag vinegar life. That is how I cook. I love vinegar. I just like... (laughs) I'm like, all oh, these veggies, what if I just put them all in vinegar and just make it the whole dish sour? It's like salt and vinegar chips. I hate salt and vinegar chips. I don't like them. Oh, I love oh, salt and they're... vinegar chips. They're so good. Some people dip their fries in vinegar. I don't like that. It was really funny. We had we had a we had a contentious debate with my family over the last weekend over whether um the the sour dill chips were better or the salt and vinegar chips were better. And they're basically the same goddamn chips. <laughs> <laughs> I will say I prefer the sour the or sorry, the salt and vinegar to the sour dill. But this See, is all kind that's... of that is what I said. I don't like, I like dill in small doses. Dill, like too much dill is too much dill. You can't it's have too a, it's much a big salt dill and vinegar. I don't think Personally. I ever had the dill chips, sour dill chips. Well, you don't try them. They're worse than the salt and vinegar chips. You're wasting your goddamn time. Okay, got it. All right, Chris, now waste our goddamn time with your answer. So for my answer, the, the science, classic science fair experiment that I looked at was potato batteries. So first thing I look at how potato battery, batteries actually work. So... The potato actually isn't the source of the power. What the, the potato does is it connects two electrodes to each other. So it's like two dissimilar metals. They usually use zinc and copper, are two common ones that they use. And what the potato does, it acts as a bridge between those two electrodes. And allow, it allows the cathode, which I think in this case is the zinc, to provide, it, it, it like sends an electron through the potato to the anode, which is the copper and the copper receives the electron and that that traveling of the electron creates like an electric current and that's what causes the power or produces the power 
So it's really the zinc that and like the the exchange of the electron. It's not the potato. Um, you can use other things. So they use like but like bananas and strawberries also work. Sometimes they use lemons. Um, it's really like the the acid that's in the potato that that creates the uh, the bridge. So anything just with that acid or the high uh, salt content will work. But the potato is is usually used because it's or it's more preferred because it's more durable than other things and it attracts less pests. So that's kind of why it's more common. So that's how a potato battery works. So the question I wanted to answer was, would the world be able to run on potato power, just potato batteries, and that's it? So to do this, I need to find out how much how much energy a potato battery produces. Um, and to do this, I found a video of someone measuring the voltage and current of just one potato battery. So the YouTube I, YouTube channel that I found called Monkey C, they measured the voltage and current, and I calculated from that that the potato battery produces 0. 0.00036 watt hours of energy. That's not good. It's very low. As a point of comparison, a normal like alkaline AA battery provides about 3.9 watt hours. So that's like a thousand potatoes. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like 10,000 potatoes. <laughs> How do they fit all those potatoes in that little battery? <laughs> But we can increase the energy output of a potato, actually. So there's a study in 2010 by researchers at the, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. It was led by a guy named Chaim Rabinovich. And they found that cooking the potatoes actually reduces the electrical resistance that makes it... It reduces the electrical resistance within the potato, and that makes the battery more powerful. So in the experiment, they bo- they ended up boiling their potatoes for eight minutes and they cut it into slices. So they had, I think they had like either four or five slices for one battery. And they're like attached in a series to create like cells in a battery. And doing this, they're able to increase the, the energy output ten, by a factor of 10. So now it's just a thousand potatoes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're actually able to use this setup to power like two LED lights. I think they, so they had like, zinc plates and copper plates and they sandwich the potatoes like in between them instead of just like sticking like nails in them or whatever so i think it was like the the contact area helped so there's more contact area you get more energy and they actually said that that with their system they could light a room with leds for 40 days which is actually pretty decent that's that sounds kind of promising and their goal, actually their goal for the, the entire study was that eventually they wanted to provide a light source, like a cheap light source for developing countries. So like a benefit of the potatoes that they found as a, as a selling point was that, well, they ran a cost analysis of this and they found that one potato battery or, or potato power, I guess, in general, it, it costs $9 per kilowatt hour compared to like a, a D battery costs $84 per kilowatt hour. So it reduces the cost by a factor of 10, which is very significant. This seems like this seems like one of those things where it's like, oh yeah, I've created this technology for developing countries because it has no practical use in places that it doesn't have any practical... It's like, it doesn't have any practical use. They say it's for developing countries because they're like, oh yeah, they have plenty of potatoes, right? It, it just seems like... I don't know specifically what part of it is wrong or the most wrong. It seems wildly misguided. Yeah, I mean... So 
they were like part of the argument was that potatoes are the fourth most abundant food crop so like potatoes are and they're like spread out throughout the world like a lot of places have potatoes but you know it's not super abundant like a whole bunch of zinc plates yeah so that was one of the issues so they did do a follow-up three years later and because they it ended up not being able to scale up and they kind of tried to figure out the reasons for that and one of the reasons they said is just because no one decide to invest in it because they're more interested in other forms of infrastructure like solar and wind power <laughs> and they just didn't like potato power has a negative stigma and it's not glamorous at all so they just didn't no one decided to invest in it that was one of their reasons oh my god that's a, I, that's my that's my other favorite one from science is like this technology would be feasible if it got invested if it was invested in and it's like, nah, I don't think so. I, I also like the idea that the problem is that potato power was not glamorous enough. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> I mean, you know, energy companies are risk adverse, and they won't they won't sign on on bold new <laughs> inventions like potato power. Another issue was that it, it provides power, but it's at a, it's like a very low voltage power, and it's a low current power, so it's not extremely useful. It it technically supplies electricity. Yeah. For some definition of electricity. Um, and then a third problem that they came upon was that it actually, like, if they're using it for developing countries, it depletes their food stocks. <laughs> so, like, if they use potatoes as a source of food, then they would need to not eat in order to have power. <laughs> See, I also feel like that's just not a true statement. <laughs> like, that feels equally misguided, where it's just like... What are the problems with your plan? It's like, well, I guess if they use the potatoes, they can't eat the potatoes, right? I mean, I can see that being sort of legitimate. That's the problem. It's only sort of, like, it's logically there, but the practical, I can't imagine that's the practical result of it. I mean, obviously there are other issues too, but. Yeah, the fact that you're, try <laughs> the fact that you're trying to ser like seriously power things with potatoes. That's what our show is for. It's absurd hypotheticals, not, you know, competitive alternatives to solar and wind power hypotheticals <laughs> but let's say we do seriously want to power the world with potatoes could we come up with solutions for these issues that they ran into so you can solve the the low voltage and low current problem because you can you can increase the voltage if you connect the batteries in series and you can increase the current if you connect them in parallel so if you have the right setup you can you can get the voltage and current to what you want it to be for the food stocks, like depleting food stocks, I guess we could just have them stop eating potatoes and grow some other stuff. I don't know. <laughs> just grow more potatoes. That could be por qué no los dos. Grow we more just potatoes. Have potatoes for everybody. Yeah, and then for the stigma thing, I don't know. We could have like people lobby for potatoes. <laughs> That's possible. <laughs> so, okay, we we solved those, <laughs> kind of. Um, how many potatoes would we actually need to power the world? Now that we've increased our our energy output by 10 times. <laughs> so to match a, because I said a, a AA battery is 3.9 watt hours. Now that we have a boiled potato, that means that we, in order to match a AA battery, we need 1,083 potatoes. So obviously that's, that's it's not feels like a lot. Yeah. promising. <laughs> but I was like, okay, let's just start scaling it up anyway, just to see. So... To power your home, I actually took this from a previous episode that we did from Ben's answer when he found out how many hamsters you need to power the world. And to power one home, uh, you would need 30 kilowatt hours per day. So 
For that, you would need 8.3 million potatoes per day. So that per year, that would be 3 trillion potatoes. So far, sounds sustainable. <laughs> yeah. So obviously, it's not going to work. But I just wanted to see for the world anyway, because why not? So the world in 2019, we consumed around one, 159 terawatt hours of energy. Terawatts is a big number. <laughs> 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 and that means that we would need 44 quadrillion potatoes. We very rarely go into quadrillion. You know what this is? This is exactly, you know that game online, that cookie clicker game? Yeah. Where all you do, like, is you, you click the cookie and you get a dollar. And then you can you can hire people to make cookies for you and create factories. And the joke of the game is that you go from having, you know, $20 from your cookie stand to literally pentillions of dollars from your demon-fueled, you know, world domination cookie business. This is basically that except for... Um, potatoes <laughs> matt damon is the start you start with matt damon and he's, <laughs> he's making some potatoes and he starts hooking them up in series and suddenly he's powering a potato producer and then you just go wild from there i'm having deja vu i feel like we've had this conversation in the past like 50 episodes ago or something we probably have i do like cookie clicker <laughs> so that's a lot of potatoes we need we need 44 quadrillion potatoes how many potatoes do we actually grow so in 2019 uh, they measure it in, t in metric tons. So in 2019, we produced 423 million metric tons of potatoes in the world. And I found that the average potato weighs about 6.15 ounces, which is 0 0.00017 metric tons. So that means that we, ha we produce around 2.5 trillion potatoes per year, which is 0.0057% of what we need. Yeah, trillion sounds like a big number until you need a quadrillion, in which case it's no good. Yeah, we're nowhere close at all. We are kind of close to being able to power a house for a year, though. Um, so we needed three trillion and we have 2.5 trillion. So we're only fi 500 billion off. God, is that how bad? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we. I guess it is possible. So if you... Um, if we all work together. <laughs> if everyone stopped eating potatoes, we... Uh, maybe increase our potato production a little bit, and then we go like two months without power, <laughs> then we could do it. And that's that's pretty much how, we, how much we could sustain for, with just potato power. And just as a side note, because I found it was kind of interesting. So this reaction that creates the power, um, like the, the exchange of electrons from the zinc to the copper, a byproduct of that is actually hydrogen. So... We would need somewhere to store these three trillion potatoes, and it would be, I for some reason, I imagine it all being in one spot. Because <laughs> <laughs> why not? And it, just like in one warehouse, and all this hydrogen would be building up, and it would be very flammable. And, uh, I mean, I guess we need to boil the potatoes, so I guess we could use it to boil them. We could, I don't know. <laughs> or, you talk about storage, hydrogen, you know, you got a big blimp, just have a hydrogen-filled blimp and flying the potato. potatoes and it's a flying potato supply flying potato battery flying potato battery okay i like that sure it's gonna be the name of my next punk band it's only gonna be supplying energy to one house though so probably be tethered to the house it's more of a flying uh flying potato balloon battery i don't know <laughs> doesn't really roll off a tongue no but 
Yeah, that's what you'd do, I guess. <laughs> Not nowhere close to powering the world, but you can power your house, kind of, sort of. Ben, what did you do? So I looked into that thing where you put Mentos in Coke and it explodes. Do you think you're allowed to do that as a science fair project? Yeah, totally. Why not? If if the baking soda vinegar volcano is allowed, then why isn't that allowed? Um, one is better at making a, <laughs> a geyser. One's much messier than the other. <laughs> is that a selling point or a... a... <laughs> well, imagine you are organizing a science fair event um, and you have very nicely been given access to the school gymnasium to, you know, set things up. Or maybe you're in a little convention center that has nice carpets, and uh, one of the kid walks in with, like, two bottles of Diet Coke. And, and a, a pack know, of Mentos. And a pack of Mentos. And you're going to look at that, and you're going to be like, yeah, that's not okay. So I, I imagine <laughs> that in this situation, you would have done it before the science fair and present your Yeah, and just put findings. on your poster board. Yeah, you got your trifold board. It is true. And, and, I, and I will say, I, I, I was... I was Googling a little bit on the um, on the Diet Coke and Mentos, and some of the articles did recommend doing things for like a science fair project. Yeah, of trying to optimize it or something. You like like alter you know the number of Mentos and see which one goes the furthest or something. Before we get into your answer, I we probably should have talked about this before any of the answers. But have you either of you done the science fair before? Oh yeah, I did one where I was seeing if. I smelted in different saltinesses of water faster or not, (laughs) which is really sounds like a good topic because it relates to global warming and all that and glaciers and things. When you said Um, I didn't I didn't pick up on that when I did my project. It was just recommended to me by my teacher, like after the grades came in, (laughs) just like I never connected that this was like might have actual applications. When you said I ice melted, I thought you said I smelted like. A I weird way of saying smelled. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, 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 I learned how to smelt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I, I melted ice in cups and timed it. It was not a good project, but it was better than the project I had from the previous year where I was on a deep scientific hunt to find out if um, fish could live in different types of water. Oh yeah, you did mention oh, that before. No. And uh, I had, I bought basically a bunch of little goldfish and... I tried that in tap water, in salt water, and in carbonated mineral water. And I don't think I need to tell you the science to tell you which ones they like the least. <laughs> this is this is so bad. Why? Um, so I wasn't super ambitious in school, and um, that's about it. And I wanted a goldfish. <laughs> and I wanted the gold. I did actually. I did have some number of goldfish that survived that experiment. I think the ones in the mineral water had the best chance. Um, because it was very obvious <laughs> I thought they were dead immediately because basically they filled they got caught in the bubbles and um they just immediately floated to the surface once you put them in. Yeah. Oh, no. You actually mentioned this on our um what if the ocean was carbonated episode. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, and and basically they, 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 they took a second to try to swim to the bottom of the cup and like stay under the water and then they just got pushed up by the bubbles. That's really and, sad. Uh, well they survived, so it all worked out in the end. <laughs> Um, they're dead now definitely dead now i don't know how long they survived after that i can't imagine i was entertained along by having a couple of sheep pet fish that reminded me of a science fair project i got to see on but <laughs> yeah that was that was the extent of my science fair attempts i honestly don't remember if i ever did a science fair i did one with um st- i was measuring static shock to see what different metals 
would shock you more. So I just went around my house like touching different things and getting shocked. <laughs> <laughs> I I definitely had I feel like I feel like my school was always more of a like here's an experiment for you to do thing than a sort of free form science fair deal. Yeah. Maybe I'm just forgetting. I've blocked it all out. Who knows? But I don't remember any science fairs. I did ha- I did have a brief actually I did have a brief fling with doing a real science fair project um near the end of my high school career where uh, a classmate of mine actually like did the science fair like you know national level science fair stuff oh wow yeah he was real smart and we were talking about you know in the early stages of that and i was like oh yeah because super cool to do a project like that and uh i had in my head i'm like i think i figured out the fourth dimension i was not super smart (laughs) (laughs) and so i was like oh you could definitely do a project about the fourth dimension and i guess he thought thought it might be like a like a judge pleaser so he's kind of like yeah if you want to work together on it we can like try and work together and i was like awesome and then it became within like three days immediately clear that the amount of work that was going to go into it was much more <laughs> than the amount of work i was willing to put into right. it and uh i think i i think i ended up like effectively abandoning him before i did any actual research on it so did he continue with it Ah, probably not all the way through. He probably did something else by the time he actually got there. I didn't follow up very much. (laughs) (laughs) You sound like a good friend back then. We were good friends. We just just stopped talking about the science fair. (laughs) Mm, Okay. So yeah, that was as close as I got. So that's my science fair stories. Anyway, Mentos and Coke. So we've never done this before. If you put Mentos and Coke, it sort of like just gushes up out of the top the other thing you can do aside from making like the coke fountain that way you can do it as a rocket or basically you have to like you just have to like tape some mentos together and tape them like the inside of the cap then sort of shake it and throw it down the ground so the cap pops off and then it just all goes out at once and launches the coke bottle up like 30 40 feet something like that it's you know pretty pretty cool so why does this actually happen? Because it's it's not the reason I thought it was. I always assumed there was some sort of chemical reaction that that caused it to you know fizz up a bunch and yeah, and that's what I thought too. Uh, it turns out it's not. It turns out it's entirely a physical reaction, and and why it happens is that Mentos aren't actually smooth. They're covered in a bunch of tiny little like dimples and and pits and stuff, and when they fall into the Coke. What's happening is all those little um, little cavities are basically basically making CO2 bubbles form in the Coke. And then as those bubbles form, they then create more bubbles because they're a place for the bubbles to form. And it just sort of all the CO2 bubbles up at once, which causes the reaction. There's a couple other factors as well. So Mentos contain gum Arabic which I don't know what it's used for on Mentos, but apparently it reduces the surface tension of a liquid it's in. Gum Arabic is my favorite Microsoft Word font. <laughs> it's, it's really annoying that they only actually do it in pink, though. Um, <laughs> but then also, and then one of the things, it's always Diet Coke you use, and that's because Diet Coke contains aspartame, which also reduces the surface tension of the liquid. So it works in other liquids, too. It's just Diet yeah. Coke is better. Right. Other other carbonated liquids. Yeah. That's actually one of the go-to like science fair project versions of this is you take a bunch of different sodas and put Mentos in them and see which one like goes at the highest of the, the fountain. So what can we actually do with this like scaling it up? So the problem is when you scale it up, it doesn't actually really work. 
I, I Googled for a while because I figured that someone on YouTube had at some point done like a giant, you know, bottle of Coke of Mentos. And I found some examples, but they don't really work because you need that pressure to build up quickly. And if you have a larger, you know, like a larger bottle, with a larger opening, it's just going to sort of, you know, fizz out a little bit. It's not going to actually fountain. Yeah, there's, there's there's a bunch of people disappointing ones of people filling like a whole pool with coke, right? And just like and just nothing dumping. Happens. Yeah, yeah it's just like disappointing as those hot knife videos. Yeah, more I, I would say more disappointing because at least there is a very hot knife in those. Yeah, like that's pretty cool. I did find I got excited for a second because I found one where there was this Russian guy who who made like this giant coke thing and dumped a bunch of what turned out to actually be baking soda in it, which is a chemical reaction and does cause an actual like explosion. So we can't just do like, I was hoping I could like, you know, can you actually launch yourself into space with a bottle, a giant bottle of Coke? Doesn't work. Just not going to happen. So we went down some other options. We started looking into what if you could do something with, you know, if this, this gas is coming up out of the Coke, can you build up the pressure and do something with that? And the answer is no. The problem you run into is that the way that you carbonate a soda is by pressurizing it. That causes the, uh the CO2 to absorb down into the liquid. So as the pressure increases, that CO2 is just going to reabsorb into the Coke. You'll just wind up with Coke, which isn't a very exciting uh, result. You know, it's just minty Coke. And at this point, I was getting a little demoralized because options were sort of running a little bit low. But then I did find, I did find a very interesting paper from a team at, at the Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, where basically they had this idea where so you guys know how how submarines change um i have elevation here which i'm really right change like depth right basically they have like, why don't you tell me sure you know they have they have tanks in them that they either pump air into or out of to basically raise or lower the density of the submarine as related to the water around it which makes it either rise or sink but that process takes time because you have to pump in the air and then there's you know you're not actually like really you don't have great fine grain control over it. And they thought that if you release these little microcavitation bubbles, you could basically lower the density of the water above or below the submarine, which would let the sub either, you know, dive faster or surface faster um, than just affecting its own density. Um, I was like, well, what if you had, you know, remote controlled pockets of Mentos that you could release that would create these bubbles and let you do the same thing? I got all excited and I read further in the paper and found out they tried it didn't work. Just straight up doesn't work. So the, the, the problem is that it just always winds up making it um, more buoyant, which it's not nothing. Like that's technically kind of useful. I tried to go down that road for a while with like letting people surface while diving with Mentos, but that would only work if they were diving in Coke, which isn't particularly useful. <laughs> I need something a little more, a little more general than that. And finally, I actually like was kind of just accepting the fact that my answer was going to be a shrug. And I was looking into just basically other other things that, you know, people use cavitation for this, like forming of a lot of, you know, of bubbles like this. And I ran into something, which is, do you know how fast a torpedo travels? This is a fun question. Because I, I found don't. out I, I very much did not know. Yeah, I have like no idea of the scale at all. Yeah. So it turns nope. out. Would you like to guess, Marcus? Do you have a guess? No, I'm no, I'm not going to guess. That's, That's just going to make me look stupid. Look stupid. The, the only thing is, I can look stupid. Either either I guess it right and your fact sounds boring, or I get it wrong by a lot. That's true. Those are really the only options. 
Can you say it goes like six miles an hour? So you look really silly. I would say that it goes six point two miles an Joke's hour. Jokes on you. It goes four miles per hour. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the so so the torpedoes the U.S. Navy uses the Mark Forty Eight um, torpedo only has a top speed. Well, hilariously, the official list of top speed is just greater than thirty two miles per hour, which is very vague. The actual top speed is apparently around sixty three or so miles per hour. Which is a lot slower than I expected, actually. But it makes sense. It's something you're moving through water, and water has a lot of drag. Which lets me get to the VA-11 Schval torpedo. <laughs> what? <laughs> How does that spell? How is it spelled? S-H-K-V-A-L. Schval. Yep, Schval. I mean, that's all I can get to. Schval. It was designed around the same time as the Mark 48, actually. Both made in the 70s. Which has a slightly higher top speed of 230 miles per hour. And the reason that this one can go like four times faster is that it is what is called a super cavitating torpedo. And what that means is that it has a specially shaped nose cone and does something that I couldn't find actual like details on with the way it releases the exhaust from the engine. That basically as it moves, it forms a bubble of gas around the torpedo, which just prevents the water from making contact with it, which close to eliminates all drag from the water. And apparently the U.S. Navy is actually working on a submarine that could do something similar. And theoretically, if you could make something that could perfectly supercavitate and have just like a full like air bubble around itself while it's moving the entire time, the, the theoretical top speed uh, would be the speed of sound underwater, which is about 3,600 miles per hour, which is like five to six times or sorry, about six times faster than like an airplane. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's one of the numbers I don't need context yeah, for. Yeah, that one's that's fast. fast. You can figure that one out. So my idea here, I'm not going to say that you can perfectly supercavitate by putting Mentos on a submarine and putting it in code. <laughs> that's not going to work. I'm not going to make that claim. <laughs> However, if you have these bubbles coming off from the Mentos and you're moving through Coke, it is going to have an effect and my idea is basically, and I have no idea how fast it would actually be, because once again, this is not something anyone has tried for very obvious reasons. You should be able to get some effect and you should be able to, I see it as some sort of like mass tra- mass transit option to replace like maybe Amtrak, where you just had these tubes of Coke going <laughs> under the country or on the surface. I don't know that you just have like weird submarines in covered in Mentos. <laughs> I think we can get there. I think we can outrun a plane. All it all it needs is funding. All these risk adverse transport <laughs> right. companies want, wanting to expand on buses and subways and you know bicycle lanes. No one wants to live the sub Mentos submarine dream. Why won't anyone fund me? Mentos isn't glamorous. Yeah, they're gonna exactly. They're gonna say it's not glamorous <laughs> enough. <laughs> no one wants a Mentos submarine. Damn it. <laughs> anyway, that's apparently my idea. Is Mentos submarine transportation. That's awesome. And now that we've all had an award-winning idea, well, actually, I guess just you guys are solving world problems. I'm just making a, a you're, nasty you're, you're volcano. Ca- you're causing world problems. <laughs> well, before anyone notices, we're gonna we're gonna move on to our would you rather question. Ben, are you ready? Sure. For a would you rather? Oh, I jumped the gun there. Sure. <laughs> He usually just says, Ben, are you ready? Yeah. Yeah. Would you rather get pooped on by a bird three times a day for a week or have poison ivy for a month? 
wait, wait, hold, okay, come on. This is easy. <laughs> this is so easy. Which way are you leaning for easy? Here, here, okay. My, I'm going to say that being pooped on by a bird is far better here. Yeah, I agree. Because, all right, I would much rather get pooped on by a bird than have poison ivy for one day. A game pooped on by a bird three times a day for a week is only 21 instances of bird poop. And there are, thir- okay, 28 to 31 days in a month. Ergo, by math, getting pooped on by a bird is better. I've actually never had poison ivy before. Really? Yeah, I also haven't had it. I've had, I know people who have had it real bad. Yeah. I've had, I was a I mean, I can sort of imagine what it would be like, but itchy. I've never had it myself. It's very itchy. Yeah, for example, my my dad, he had it real bad when uh, he did a bunch of weed whacking, not realizing it was um, poison ivy. Oh, no. Did, like, aerosol uh, He was and... also wearing uh, Crocs. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so that wasn't fun for him. I've also never gotten pooped on by a bird, though, so. I don't. It's one of those things where I'm also not sure if it ever happened to me. <laughs> Once, when my sister was in like middle school, a bird pooped directly in her lunchbox. <laughs> we we were at a school. This is actually great because I know she listens to the podcast too. So, hey, hey, Ashley, how's it going? I'm telling your telling your story. We, we our school, you ate lunch outside, and she like opened up her her lunchbox one day and just like literally right. I think it was literally as she was starting lunch too. It's not like she was like at the end of it. It was on her lunch, directly out <laughs> of the lunchbox. Oh, that's amazing. That's like such an innocent, like, funny problem to have, too. Like, it sucks because you lose your lunch, but that's just, that's a story that goes on and on. You can tell that the rest of your life. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Your, your brother can, too. It's like, it's like cartoonish. Like, it's like if you, if you, like, you know, walked under a ladder or broke a mirror that morning, that's like the, the you right, know, that's how they like would show you have a comedy luck. movie yeah. or something. I mean, getting pooped on by a bird isn't. I mean, it's not. It's not great. Don't get me wrong, but like, it's not the worst thing. So, what does that mean if you just like stay inside all day? Oh, they'll find a way. <laughs> yeah, you've now committed to having three birds in your home. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Or one very poopy bird in your home. Right. Do you get? Do you like know when it's coming? No. No. Okay, so it's random throughout the day. Yeah, I also don't think you can like you know carry an umbrella or anything i think i think it's like it like poops on you right either on your head or on your you know on your clothes yeah which would be the most annoying part of it like once a day definitely no problem but three times a day it's like how many times are you gonna fucking change it it is it is one of those things where people are gonna start getting really suspicious where like (laughs) like think about like the first day you like you like get to work and you're like bird pooped on me that's why i'm late you like go out and get lunch, <laughs> and you come back. You're like bird pooped on me again. Like I, I yeah, swear, that's, that's like oh my god, I can't believe it. And the third time is gold. Like eventually, do you have to just? I think eventually you can't change because people just won't. They're gonna be like, dude, no, just like what are you actually doing? You're like, no, for real, a bird pooped on me again. So you like, have to look. show them the poop. Yeah. Can you just dress in layers? <laughs> that would work. So it would be weird. Three layers a day. And wear a just hat. Just like start the day like in, and this is this is like day five when no one believes the bird's pooping on you anymore. You just like start the day. You got like a light jacket, uh, a sweater vest, and Can you then, like, like a poncho uh, at all times. I think I think rain gear is inappropriate for the for the hypothetical. Okay, I think umbrellas and ponchos. What are about a hat? Do do hats? Can you wear a hat? You can, you can wear a hat, but it's not necessarily gonna hit the hat. Not like a hard hat. You have to wear like. Right, a baseball cap or like a fabric hat. I mean, or something, something that you can like take that. off though, so that it's not hitting your head. 
Yeah. It has to be something you care enough that you're going to have to clean it. Because if it hits your head, then you have to take a shower, which is much worse than just changing your clothes. Yeah. That is true. That's true. And even if it hits you in the shoulder, there's a, there is a chance it like gets it's into like your splash. hair a little bit. Yeah. The splash zone. How much poison ivy do you have? Yeah, is it like all over your body or is it contained in one spot? It can't be all over your body. Yeah, no. It's got to be like... What, maybe like... What part of your body? A random... What was that? If Marcus was getting killed Sorry, by a motorcycle? Someone... <laughs> yeah, someone... Yeah, someone... <laughs> I just got murdered by a motorcycle. That's it. Goodbye, cruel world. Uh, I'll never know what <laughs> how much poison ivy we're going to have. Um, I, I think you pick a random... I think it's like a annoying... It's like... It's definitely itchy. And maybe like you pick a limb each day. Like a random limb. Oh, so it's changing. Does it... Sp- like, I, I was going to ask, does it spread like poison ivy does? Because then it will eventually probably be on most of your body by the end of the month. Yeah, so I guess, is it one severe case that lasts all month? Or is it just, like, a moderate case that you just... Do you refresh it every day? Do you just, like, like there's just a poison ivy plant growing, like, across your doorway, and you just don't realize it's there. You just walk through it every day. Right. Not, and you're, like, never connect the dots. I guess that would be a little more equal in terms of the would you rather. Mm-hmm. Then again, like... As far as people believing you that's happening, having poison ivy for a month, like, oh, man, this poison ivy is not going away. Like, people tell you to go to the doctor and get checked right, out. And yeah. That might be annoying on, like, week two through four. But, yeah, if it was a full month for both, I think it would be closer. But yeah, I think it's just a week. I think I could put up. I'm going to say pooped on a bird three times a day for a week, I think, is the better of the two. Yeah. I think that's clearly the better of the two. So what do you guys do if it is a month for both? If it's a month for both... Actually, why don't we say what if it's a week for both? Because I feel like a month for bird poop is a long time for bird poop. Yeah, that is a lot of bird poop. You're going to have... You're going to start having, like, wardrobe issues. Right, yeah. So let's say, what if it's a week for both? I guess that's not too much different than just having poison ivy. Let's meet in the middle. Two weeks? Two weeks. <laughs> Two weeks feels like the sweet spot. Yeah. In general, the poison ivy is more socially acceptable. It's not, like, a weird thing that's happening. Right. I wish I, not not that I wish I've had, I had poison ivy, but I don't know, like... You wish you knew the experience of poison ivy. Yeah, I wish I, I, wish I had the experience for reference for specifically this podcast. Because, <laughs> like, I don't think I've ever had anything be itchy for, like, a week in a, like, not ignorable amount. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had chicken pox, but that was when I was really young and I don't remember it, so... My, my chicken pox, besides the actual, like, visible pox, was effectively asymptomatic. So that one wasn't bad for me. Mm. God, I'm getting itchy now just, like, talking about this. Yeah, I know. And it's really annoying, which makes me want to pick bird poop again. <laughs> I mean, itchiness is, like, one of the more annoying sensations yeah. that you can have. I also don't know how to get bird poop out of my clothes. I mean, you wash them. Like, <laughs> okay, that's the that's answer. Do not wash them. <laughs> But yeah, but like, I, I worry that like, I will need to use like a special, Does I don't know, stain? cleaning product. Yeah, like a stain remover or a product or should I be bleaching it or do I need one of those fancy like Tide pen? Like, what do I do? So I would be, I would be at a loss personally a little bit on that front. I'm less worried about the clothes. I'm more worried about it hitting my head. I'm, I'm more worried about the social implications. So I'm glad we're really covering all the bases here. <laughs> all right. So given the time, I think t- I think two weeks is the pro- is the time frame. I think given that I have in my wizened adulthood gotten better at not scratching mosquito bites, I think I could deal with the poison ivy. 
and not, I think I'd be more annoyed by having to change three times a day and do all that laundry, all that gross laundry, too much poop. So I am actually going poison ivy, final answer. I am still going to go poop, bird poop, even those two weeks. Two weeks makes it a little worse, but I mean, it's kind of annoying for a little bit, but then when you change, you're just back to normal. So whereas the the poison ivy is a constant annoying throughout the There's two no weeks. escape. Yeah. I Two weeks is getting to the tipping point where I'd start to shift towards wanting poison ivy, but I still do want the bird poop, I think. I agree with Chris. If you get drunk enough, do you not itch as much? <laughs> I think you, I already said final answer. Let's not open. Let's not open. I think, I think you want it just like losing your self control and not itching. It just gets worse. Yeah, probably just scratch more. Yeah, it's probably just you just probably lose the self control not to scratch. Speaking of having self control, you you should leave your self control by the door and walking through that open doorway. Go over to www.patreon.com slash absurd hypotheticals. And without even thinking about it, like, don't even just don't even think, just click, just click, just ignore all your impulses. Click on the become a patron button. All you'll lose out on is one dollar a month. And with that missing dollar, you will magically gain access to all our behind-the-scenes episodes where we talk about making the show. We brainstorm new ideas and concepts for uh, like show segments and how we're, you know, show structures. We've had guests on, we've had silly things like Ben drinking spicy milk. There's lots of good things in the behind-the-scenes episodes. They are well worth your hard-earned dollar. So, again, just don't think about it. Just, just go, just go, just go and click it. Just www.patreon.com slash absurd hypotheticals. Go and click it, click it, click it, click it. <laughs> Type exactly that on impulse without thinking. Yeah, <laughs> without even thinking. <laughs> the fourth click it is really important. Don't forget that one. I don't know if, if, if they get they, if they add another dollar every time they click the button, but I can only assume so. They do not. They don't. <laughs> I, I, I basically just want them to play Cookie Clicker with our Patreon page. <laughs> just make the numbers go up, guys. Go up into the trillions, please, and we'll be, <laughs> we'll be all set. But in any case, whether, whether you blindly go into the wild yonder of the internet and do that or not, you are more than welcome to join us next week where we answer the following question. What if everything was a mirror? <laughs>